Robin Kimura Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. It's his weekly Monday appearance. It has occurred in this case on a Monday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note. In this case, what the methodology used by medical professionals to estimate a pregnant woman's due date might reveal about the Orioles' decision not to sell at the deadline. Hard-hitting analysis. That uh, also, how a computer simulation likely played a role in the Yankees' decision to acquire Todd Frazier so that the Red Sox couldn't acquire Todd Frazier. Dave Cameron provides reasonable speculation, not wild speculation, but reasonable speculation on the use of computer simulation in major league front offices. Uh, And finally, some other less compelling points about the trade deadline as well. Also included, less compelling, perhaps less engaging, but present nonetheless. Also, Dave Cameron makes an observation, which I submit applies not only to the recording of this program, but also to any of our plaintiff attempts at human communication. Yeah, we might just be talking for the fun of it. A sad, sad thought that... Uh, a less sad thought is the prospect of acquiring a Fangraphs membership. They exist, is one thing I would like to inform you. For a reasonable sum, readers can support the great work that occurs, that appears at Fangraphs.com. And also, uh, for a slightly less reasonable sum, readers can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the terrible burden of banner ads, uh, facilitating faster loading speeds. As I have said many times before, and as I have also said, what else it does is to liberate one from the distortive effects of advertising. And uh, I suppose with that advertisement now complete, we can turn to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Uh, you, um, now, uh, of course, Dave Cameron, we are, uh, we are approaching the trade deadline. Um, there are events, there are current events about which uh, we will talk. Uh, we'll talk about Raphael Devers, probably. Yeah. Uh, maybe the J.D. Martinez trade. Uh, maybe the Todd Frazier, David Robertson, Tommy Conley trade, uh, etc. However, um, as you know, uh, I make a habit sometimes of presenting to you <clears throat> a... Uh, a real life uh, anecdote or concept, and I ask you, uh, what in baseball is like that, or what well, we can learn about baseball from it? And uh, I would like to present to you uh, something from the medical community, in particular the obstet- uh, obstetrician, the obstetricianal community, or maybe the pediatric community. Pediatric, I guess it depends. Right. <laughs> it, it depends. Right. So, as you know, um, uh, well, at this point. Uh, my wife and I are two days away from the the estimated due date of our but child. By the time people listen to this podcast, you could be a dad. There's a chance okay. this podcast will never go up. There is a strong chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we is. might just be talking for the fun of it. So, <clears throat> but, but this due date is is the thing about which I want to ask you, right? Yeah. So, uh, due dates I believe are typically set at 40 weeks from the time of the uh, the last menstrual uh, cycle. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. And and this is essentially this is a, a generically applied date across essentially all sorts of pregnancies. Yeah. However, 
there are clear factors which can um, alter the the due date. Uh, for example, I was just reading a, a post at the Mayo Clinic's website. Um, women uh, in their first pregnancy are much more likely to have a, a baby after term, it's yeah. called, you know, right. after 40 weeks. It's yeah. not uncommon for it to happen in 41 weeks. Yeah. Um, apparently boys, typically if there's a boy, uh, he will experience a longer gestation period uh, than, than a girl. Um, I think obesity can lead to a longer a longer uh, gestational period, it's, and there are some other there are some other factors. But it, <clears throat> we have this weird thing, right? When you go in and you go see the doctor or the midwife or whatever, they say, "Oh, your due date is this particular day," yeah. and there is no attempt to adjust it based on certain uh, very obvious criteria. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've not even you know mentioned all of them, and I'm curious as to. As to why uh, why they wouldn't do that? As to why do you think they wouldn't do it? Is it is it because the you know <clears throat> because essentially like the OBGYN community is somehow uh, not particularly progressive, or is it because when you're dealing with such a large sort of institutional um, idea, any change uh, will have consequences that maybe are difficult to predict? So I think this is probably. Um, I mean, I guess I'm supposed to compare it to something like in baseball. No, well, no. How about? But but you can help me also define define the terms of it before before we apply it to baseball. I guess sure. it it seems to be it seems to be an institutional choice. Yeah. And I'm curious because you know we talk about projections, for example, all the time right. in baseball. This is a type of projection, yeah. but one that does not seem to be particularly streamlined. So I think this is risk aversion. That's kind of the term I would use for this. Is essentially you have factors that suggest that more like that these projections are going to underestimate the length of pregnancy for some population by you know a few days. Usually it's like a week or something like that, or four or five mm-hmm. days or something. It's it's not like this is off by some dramatic magnitude. But we know that for some population, and, um, including my wife, who was a week late with our first boy, mm-hmm. um, you know, or eight days late, whatever, uh, that the the projected due date was a little bit of the conservative range. Um, but there's no real harm in telling someone they're going to potentially give birth a week before they expect, right? Like, so you give someone a target date and say, July 25th, congratulations, uh-huh. you're going to have a baby boy uh, or a baby girl or whatever. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know... July 25th comes, you know, give birth. Not the end of the world. You're most likely prepared. You probably have the room ready. You probably have diapers. You probably have your car seat installed. You probably have family prepared to come into town to help. Um, you've probably uh, done all the things that you need to do. And then you just hang out for a few days. Okay, and yeah. no, one, no one's really like, man, this is... I mean, obviously the woman would like to give birth and get this, you know, giant thing out of her. But, you know, there's not like this huge outcry over like... You missed the date by four days versus if you went the other way and you adjusted for these uh, factors and said, hey, look, you know, uh, July 31st is your projected due date based on the fact that it's your first, you're smaller, it's a boy, whatever. So we're going to give you a more customized due date. And so then you've planned everything around July 31st and that's when your family is coming in and and that's when you're planning on, you know, stopping work. And then July 25th rolls around and you actually hit the 40-week mark and now you're like, you told me I had another week. So I think the... uh, the cost of missing early mm-hmm. is significantly higher than missing late. And so rather than give a slightly more accurate result that gives um, produces more angry <laughs> mothers who had birth who gave birth before that they uh, before they expected, people just say, "You know what? Let's just tell everybody forty weeks 
and then all these uh, first-time uh, givers of sons won't be so mad at us. Okay, all right. So now, now here to the, I present to you the challenge then of uh, of uh, identifying something in the in the world of the pastime, uh, in which I guess what have we what have we identified here? Sometimes where it makes sense, there's a sense of risk aversion, and also yeah. we're dealing here with some sort of projection. It doesn't have to be like zips or steamers, but some yeah. sort of forecast. Yeah, I mean, as you probably like could look at like the playoff odds, right? So like uh, maybe the the Baltimore Orioles could potentially be an example of this, right? Is like the Orioles are unlikely to make the playoffs this year. They know that their fans know that, um, but they're looking at you know should they buy or sell or trade or whatever before the trade deadline. And I think teams like the Orioles are going to default to not selling if, if they're not sure. If there's like some uncertainty around the forecast, just like there's uncertainty around the due date. You uh, defer to the thing that makes people less angry, and so this, in this case, it sounds like the Orioles, despite being what, four games under 500 and having one of the worst pitching staffs in baseball, they're going to keep Zach Britton. They're at least saying they're going to keep Brad Brock. You know, they're not going to trade off some Seth Smith, some of these guys who could return some value, um, and they're going to, you know, essentially say we're not exactly sure. <laughs> uh, that this is going to happen, but there's enough uncertainty around this that we're going to take the risk averse nature, piss off as few people as possible, and uh, not make trades. Okay, yeah. So, so they have announced that they're not going to be trading Zach Britton. They didn't like they didn't announce it, but Duquette made a statement. To, I think Ken Rosenthal uh, over the weekend that basically said, you know, I don't buy all this news that we're selling everybody off. I still like our team. We're going to try and add pitching, and that's not usually the kind of thing you say if you're shopping your all star closer. Yeah, no, no, I suppose not. Uh, uh, has Britain been? I, I I assume it would be difficult to match last season. What I haven't uh, looked at his player profile in a while. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons they're probably not trading Zach Britain is the market for Britain is probably down. So he's been mm. two. He's gone on the table this twice with arm problems. He hasn't had surgery or anything. He's potentially just like worked his way back. Um, and and since coming off the table this the second time about two or three weeks ago, he's been pretty bad. <laughs> I think he has uh maybe five or six strikeouts out of, like, 40 batters faced. Not that he was ever an extreme strikeout guy, but he got his strikeout rate up to 30% last year. He's always known as a ground ball guy, but then in the last couple of years he's become a ground ball guy who also misses bats. He's not missing bats. He's not throwing strikes. His bat ups are, like, 400. And he's been on the table this twice with arm problems. Like, this is... You're not going to get in a Roldis Chapman or Andrew Miller return for mm-hmm. a guy like Britain with this kind of risk profile. So they might look at it and say, you know, if all the offers we're getting for Britain reflect the fact that he has been on the table this twice with arm problems and he's not pitching very well at the moment. Maybe we're better off holding him, hoping he pitches really well down the stretch and maybe we can get more for him this offseason. You know, you mentioned the, the, the projections and um, and how maybe teams, this is the, the sort of projected standings, playoff odds, etc. How teams uh, may view those somewhat conservatively in, in a risk-averse fashion uh, as especially as it pertains to whether they're uh, going to be selling at the deadline. Um I've, I've been thinking about the, the playoff probabilities in another way too, um, it is, it, especially in the context of not only seasonal leverage, right, or championship leverage, it's sometimes referred to, but also, but but I suppose like actual championship leverage relative to perceived championship leverage. And one thing I've noticed is that when I'm attempting, when uh, thinking about the the uh, you know various teams. And their proximity, or you know, to what degree they're in contention, I find that I find that what we have, what we call the coin flip mode, right? Yeah. Which essentially is has all of the teams um, 
uh, with their current based on their current records, their playoff odds, if they if they won fifty percent and lost fifty percent of their games over the and not just that but everybody. Right, if everybody did that. Yeah. Right, precisely. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> this, I've noticed that looking at those tends to reflect my perception of the, of teams, um, like the actual, like, uh, how close they are to, um, like, to, to what degree they're in contention. Because the numbers tend to get a little bit closer together, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, when you're hanging around the wild card spot, you're more likely to believe that your team can go on a run, or at least mm-hmm. see it that way. It's like the Orioles, we'll just keep using them as an example, right? Like, this is a flawed team with clear problems. Um, you know, it's not breaking news to say that the Orioles have a bad pitching staff, uh, especially their rotation is maybe the worst in baseball. But it's easy for, you know, the Orioles to look at and say, hey, look, we've had a bad rotation the last few years. You know, uh, we've made the playoffs, you know, a bunch of times. The computers have regularly underestimated us. We, we often outperform our preseason projections, um, you know, we're not going to put a lot of faith in those forecasts that say we're a 450, 460, 470 team. We're going to assume we can play significantly better than that. And um, so I think basically every team kind of in the race uh, talks themselves into a higher level of performance. Uh, and then obviously if they think they can win more games, um, they're going to be winning those more games against better teams. So then they pull those teams down. And I think... Major league teams in general, uh, unless you're play, maybe playing in like the NL West and you just realize the Dodgers are a behemoth, um, you generally think like, yeah, there's no reason I can't run down that team in front of me. Yeah, right. And, and to illustrate your point, uh, you were mentioning the Royals just now. Uh, the top three teams in the AL Central are Cleveland, Kansas City, and Minnesota, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and they're all separated by two and a half games. Um, yeah. Cleveland, Royals are a game and a half behind. Uh, Twins, two and a half games behind. <clears throat> Our... Projected standings, which account for not only every team's record to date, but also their the team's projections for the rest of the season. You know, projections of the individual players. Um, we have the and I'll round here. We have the Indians at ninety one percent chance of winning the division. Yeah. Uh, the Royals at six. The Twins at two. Right, because right. we think the Indians are by far the best for those three teams. Like Precisely. Not, not only have they banked more wins, but we yeah. think that they that their chances of winning. More games over the second half of the season are like, much I think high. our rest of season projection for the Indians has them almost as high as every other team in baseball besides the Dodgers. Like it, they, our projections think the Indians are basically like as good as the Astros. Yeah, they have a 602 winning percentage rest of the season, yeah, which right. is um, yeah, it is. And you're exactly right; it's better than every team except the Dodgers. Yeah, so um, like yeah, certainly they haven't played like it up to this point, but it's kind of like with the Cubs, right? Like our projections don't necessarily look at season to date standings and be like, well, you're a 530 team. It looks like, you know, Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco and Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lenore. Like, these guys are awesome. Right. Now, but, uh, and then to to your, your point here, um, when we look at the coin flip method, right, mm-hmm. uh, we find that the, by this method, uh, Cleveland only has a 44% chance right. of, of winning the division. Kansas City has a 30% chance. Minnesota right. has a 20 so where before uh, Kansas City and Minnesota combined for roughly 8% yeah. chance of winning the division, here we see like about 50. 56, yeah. 56, right. And, yeah. So, uh, and so the point is that <clears throat> I will say that that 56% chance or the, you know, the 30% for the Royals, 20%, 21% for the Twins, that's when I look at the standings and I see separated by two and a half games. That's what, it, that's what my brain and, I'm, and, yeah. um, and I think I will say probably other people's brains, we have dumb brains. <laughs> essentially, and it, that's the perception. But yeah. w- but in reality, 
although it's it's even hard to say it's reality because projections yeah i think that there's there's probably a version of healthy skepticism regarding the projections yeah and there's probably excessive skepticism regarding the objections right the projections. there should be some we shouldn't just accept these as the gospel truth but i think maybe like the best example of why we still do our forecast this way is the brewers and cubs two weeks ago right so like i think at the all-star break or a little bit before maybe the brewers were up like five games four and a half five and a half games something like that um the Cubs were under 500 or like, you know, pushing 500. Uh, clearly not playing well. What the last game before the All-Star break, the Cubs gave up 10 runs in the first inning on their way of just like getting destroyed. They did not look like a good team. The Brewers were winning left and right. The Brewers were talking about, you know, making trades for guys like Sonny Gray. And, you know, I think our projections, what had the Cubs like 90% to win the division and the Brewers like 8%. Despite the fact that the Brewers had a significant lead and the Cubs were playing terribly. And then in two weeks, the Cubs have made up that entire gap. They've like around like what nine and one since the All Star break or something, and the Brewers are three and seven or something. I mean, like the two teams have significantly diverged in performance since the break. Cubs have already caught them, uh, and now that they're tied, it's it's hard to find a valid reason to think that the Brewers will outplay them over the rest of the season, um, given that the Cubs are just clearly a more talented team. Right. Yeah. Right. And so and so that's a, and I'm sure that there are examples we could look at from past years. I don't have any uh, at the top uh, at the top of my the tip of my tongue or the top of my head. I have neither uh, is the point. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, the projections are based in empirical uh, um, in data, so I'm sure there are examples at which we could look. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. But, but do, you, do you see, do you agree that, that, the, um, um, that the, the coin flip method in some way might reflect how we think of it, even if it's not accurate? I think it will more likely reflect how teams themselves will operate. So if you want to know who's a buyer and a seller and, you know, what teams are going to see themselves as, you could probably better look at the coin flip method for what, like, what are the twins going to do? Well, our projections would say they're going to sell, but they're not going to sell, probably. They're trying to trade for Jamie Garcia, or they have been since Friday. Um, you know, they're looking to add. And so if you want to kind of get an idea of, um, what teams are likely to do, regardless of whether it's rational or not, the coin flip method will probably give you a better uh, guess as to how teams see themselves. Okay. Uh, now let us uh, now let me ask you about some of the trades uh, that have occurred, some of the deals, and then uh, maybe Raphael Devers as well. Uh, I think the first one, because it's almost a week ago now, isn't it? Or it may just seems like a week ago, was the, the trade uh, by the Detroit Tigers of J.D. Martinez. Yeah, I think uh, that was uh, well. The Jose Quintana trade, I guess, was the first one of trades. Oh yeah, did. that's right. Of co- oh, of course, yes, that's right. That's that's happened also in the meantime. I, that, that seems that must. That have was been actually two weeks ago. The Quintana oh. trade what predated the Martinez trade by four or five days or something, right? And right, and you had the uh, right that allowed you the, the satisfaction of having a, a player on the trade value series right. actually traded. Yeah, that was nice. Right. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. All right. So JD Martinez is the second one, though. So JD Martinez, yeah, but kind of a. Fascinating trade from those of us who like to kind of look at trades as evidence of markets. So obviously I like to talk about markets and market rates and what, you know, people are paying for certain things. That appeals to my senses. I realize it doesn't appeal to everyone's senses. If you're a Tigers fan, you're probably just like, this trade blows. Mm-hmm. Um, but as someone who like likes interesting data points, the J.D. Martinez trade is fascinating because J.D. Martinez is very good uh, and not even really like questionably very good, right? Like, when Jason Hayward got $185 million from the Cubs a couple years ago, it was controversial because not everyone accepted the idea that Jason Hayward was good. Like, this was still, like, an argument that we had to make. Like, yeah, this is a really good ball player. Right, and And, J.D. Martinez is good in the way that for which teams usually pay. Yeah, J.D. Martinez is good in the way that everyone agrees 
you're good. Right. <laughs> you hit the ball far. You you run up whatever nine fifty OPS. Like you're a good player. This is not a controversial opinion. Um, but I think what we've seen over the last year, I mean, we could really date back to last offseason um, and say, what did the market really reject last year? It's kind of one-dimensional power, right? Like Jose Batista, no real interest, signed for one year and eighteen million with the Blue Jays. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion asked for 100 million, got 60 million. Mark Trumbo asked for 80 million, got 35 million. Like the market turned on, um, you know, right-handed power hitters or power hitters in general. Pedro Alvarez got a minor league contract. Chris Carter got Don tendered and signed for two and a half million dollars after hitting 40 home runs. Like the the league has said, this is not a thing we're going to pay for like we used to. Um, and I think JD Martinez, uh, in some sense, is another example of the fact that teams are not valuing power as they traditionally have, um, and then also just a little bit of a conflation of um, the Tigers got screwed by bad luck. So, like, the Dodgers, Astros, Nationals, all potentially could use a left fielder. Like, you could look at all three of those teams and be like, yeah, you know, the Astros have Nori Aoki. <laughs> like, he's not great. Um, the Nationals have Bryce Harper as, like, their only healthy outfielder right now. Uh, Jason Worth may or may not come back. Brian Goodwin may or may not keep hitting. Like, they could use an outfielder. The Dodgers have Chris Taylor, who was a utility infielder coming into the season as their regular left fielder right now. All of these teams, you're like, yeah, these are strong contenders with strong farm systems who could use J.D. Martinez, but they're all up by, like, 15 games. <laughs> and, like, they've won their divisions, essentially. So for them to add a rental hitter, um, even though it would be an upgrade for them in the postseason, they don't really get any real regular season bounce, so there's not a significant incentive for them to pay a huge premium just for a couple of weeks of an upgrade in the corner outfield spot. Um, just for the postseason, they're more likely to make trades for pitchers to help them in the postseason when you can really leverage uh, relief arms and, and top-tier starting pitchers. So you take all three of those teams essentially off the board, um, and then you have a whole bunch of mediocre teams in the American League who aren't interested in acquiring a rental because they're, you know, playing 500 ball and, you know, their team isn't actually that good. They don't necessarily want to pay the price just to uh, get into a wild card game, have Jeannie Martinez for that one postseason game, and then watch him leave as a free agent. So the Tigers basically got screwed by circumstances here in the fact that, like, the Diamondbacks were the only team who you could look at it and say, you know, they have a strong chance of making the wild card game. Uh, they have an incentive to win in the short term because Paul Goldschmidt's going to be a free agent soon. AJ Pollock's going to be a free agent soon. They're you know, have a lot of money on the books for Zach Greinke, who's getting older. Like, you know, they have an incentive to upgrade in the short term, and they have a big hole in left field. Because there weren't very many bidders, the Diamondbacks were just like, yeah, do you want, like, our 15th and 30th and 75th best prospect? And the Tigers didn't really have much of a choice but to say yes. Right, so that was uh, Dabo Lugo, Sergio Alcantara, and Jose King, respectively. Yeah. Um, uh, Lugo has his virtues, uh, I guess, I suppose, as does Alcantara, but uh, right, neither are, are headliners. We would typically regard as headliners for uh, for what is probably or what was going to be the best bat um, at the trade deadline. Yeah, now, I mean, I think, like, you know, in a significantly more minor trade over the uh, well, last Friday, the uh, Mariners traded Tyler O'Neill to St. Louis for Marco Gonzalez. Marco Gonzalez is a guy who spent most of the year in AAA, has already had Tommy John surgery, has had shoulder problems throws 91 miles an hour, doesn't have a good breaking ball. Uh, you know, he profiles as a back-end starter with health risk. And you can reasonably argue that the Cardinals got more from Marco Gonzalez as a controllable starting pitcher uh, than the Tigers did for J.D. Martinez, an all-star corner outfielder. And that tells you a lot about the current markets for controllable starting pitchers and corner outfielder rentals. Now, okay, well, so two questions here. Um, in terms of controllable starting pitchers, and I suppose maybe this, this extends to pitchers in general, now, we've discussed how the the market for relief pitchers certainly and probably pitchers too escalates 
around the time of the trade deadline. I, I assume part of that has to do because pitcher attrition is greater, right? So you have some so teams that are competitive might have lost pitchers. Yeah. Uh, is it also just because it's easier? Like if you're looking for a pitcher, any of the pitchers will do mostly. But if you're looking for a position player, like if you know if you had a need, like the Red Sox, we know have a need at third base. Right. JD Martinez was never going to help them. Right. So you were only they. So you had to. So the market was isolated to teams that needed a corner outfielder or maybe right. a DH. Yeah. I think, you know, we kind of see this with like, every summer, every contender, regardless of, like, of their position, is always looking to acquire arms. Not just because, like, the arms are more mutable, where you can, like, say, okay, if we acquire a starter, we can move this starter to the bullpen. It helps us in two areas. Um, that's true, but you also don't know, of your current pitchers, which ones are going to make it to October. So, like, right now the Astros are probably a really good example. Their bullpen, the first couple months of the season, was insane. Like, one of, you know, maybe the best in baseball, Chris Davinsky, Ken Giles, Will Harris. Like, these guys were awesome. Michael Feliz, uh, you know, they had James Hoyt striking guys out, coming up from AAA. This was, you know, a really great bullpen. Uh, and then, you know, some pitchers got hurt. They moved Brad Peacock into the rotation. Uh, Davinsky's regressed a little bit. Will Harris got hurt. James Hoyt apparently is the most hittable pitcher in the world, even though he strikes everybody out. Um, so now their bullpen actually looks like a little bit of a weakness. And then now, since coming off the disabled list, Lance McCullers has been terrible in July. And he, you know, made the All-Star team, was one of the best pitchers in the first half of the season. Um, so now the Astros, who, you know, ran out to a monster lead in the AL West, in part because their pitching staff was so good early in the season, have, like, legitimate questions about the quality of their bullpen and one of their best starting pitchers. And so even though they have this huge lead and this, like, on paper really good pitching staff, they have to be seriously sitting there looking and be like, do we need to add Sonny Gray just because we're not sure who's going to get hurt next or if McCullers going to, you know, have another arm injury? Is that a long history of them? We don't know if he's going to make it to October. We don't know if Davinsky is going to make it to October. We don't know if any of these guys who are pitching well now will still be pitching well in three months when we need them. Where if you have, you know, uh, a really good outfielder, you're more likely to be like, yeah, this guy's going to be fine. I don't need to go acquire someone in case that guy gets hurt in September. Now, on the topic of an outfielder getting hurt, uh, and also this J.D. Martinez trade, now you noted that the market really wasn't there. Would there have been any wisdom in uh, Detroit deciding to wait a week or two until maybe a team did lose a corner outfielder and essentially created uh, – created a market where there wasn't one before for someone of Martinez's quality. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I realized that my piece uh, about the Martinez trade came across as, like, fairly defensive of Al Avila, who's the general manager of the Tigers, and has come under criticism for this move and several other moves. Um, and I think, you know, there's a right criticism to be made here. Like, they traded them on July 17th or 18th or whatever, like, three two weeks before the deadline. If this was all you could get, why did you have to make a move so early? Um, I think there, the counterpoint would be, like, the Diamondbacks were the only team, like, making a serious run. Apparently, reports have come out afterwards, like, the Indians were kicking the tires, but, you know, it, their offer wasn't even better than what Arizona offered, and it's an in-division thing, makes things a little difficult, more difficult. If all the teams that you hope to sell Martinez to, like the Dodgers and Nationals and the Astros have already signaled to you, like, we're not really interested, we're going to go by pitching instead... You can sit around and hope that they change their mind or that an injury, uh, you know, creates an opportunity where there wasn't one before. Um, but at the same time, if you then signal to the Diamondbacks, like, hey, look, you know, we're not 
willing to um, make a deal with you right now, they might go make another deal, right? So, like, J.D. Martinez isn't the only corner outfitter on the market. They could have traded for Jay Bruce or Curtis Granderson or Melky Cabrera. Like, these guys aren't J.D. Martinez, but they're also not nothing. Um, and you potentially could have lost the one team that was most interested. And then, say, the Diamondbacks make a move, and, you know, now they say, okay, we don't, we're not in the J.D. Martinez market anymore because we went and got Jay Bruce, and he was basically free. He didn't cost us anything. You know, we just took the, took the money, and the Mets were fine with that. Um, now what, are the, now what do the Tigers do? Like, go back to the Indians, I guess, and say, hey, what are you going to give us now? I mean, like, they could have moved Martinez at the deadline for something, but it's also possible that, like, while they could have gotten more, they could have gotten less. And so, while I think I probably would have held him for longer, because I don't really like the prospects they got in return, uh, I, you know, I think they know the market better, they know the offers they were getting better. Martinez has been on the market literally for months. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not one of these cases where, like, teams had to scramble to do their research of, like, do we want J.D. Martinez? Everyone knows J.D. Martinez is available. I'm sure Avila called every team in baseball and was like, can you do better than this? And they couldn't. So they took the best offer on the table. Okay. Uh, now let's move our attention to another uh, trade that has happened in the meantime. Uh, well, this was not quite a week ago. Half a week ago. Maybe, no, maybe if a week ago. This is the deal between the White Sox and the Yankees. Um, I suppose, I don't know who, who you would identify as the headliner. It was for three... Uh, Probably um, David Robertson. He's the most known guy in the deal. Sure, but uh, we'll, also we'll call Todd Frazier. David Robertson trade. Sure, David Robertson trade. But we'll, uh, we'll also note Tommy Conley, who's had a great season, uh, somewhat yeah. unexpectedly great, but great. Yeah. And Todd Frazier, uh, if he's not necessarily uh, a great player, uh, probably represents an improvement for the Yankees, who I think have gotten uh, very. I think I think that the first base slot for the New York Yankees has been one of the least productive among teams among contenders in the majors this year. Yeah, they've gotten basically nothing from their Greg Bird replacements. I got nothing from Greg Bird before he went on the disabled list, and then nothing from the guys who replaced him. Um, so yeah, I mean, Frazier's not technically playing first base. They moved Chase Headley to first, so Frazier continued to play third, but effectively he filled the first base hole for them. I think acquiring Frazier was probably more about not letting the Red Sox acquire Todd Frazier. Uh, I, you know, we said we'll talk about Raphael Devers, but I think... Uh, my guess would be that they were more interested in um, kind of forcing the, the Red Sox, who they're trying to chase down in the division, to then turn to all the other non-Frazier third basemen. Because after Todd Frazier, like the available guys like Eduardo Nunez or an injured Martin Prado, um, not exactly stellar options. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, uh, Jan Jervis Salarte, who's yeah, injured, who's I think. Yeah, also hurt again. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, those are not like a, you know, a cornucopia of choices for the Red Sox here. So I think, you know, when the White Sox were... Um, probably talking to the Yankees about a reliever trade, maybe the Yankees said, you know what, if we have to kick in like one more fringy prospect to get Todd Frazier just to keep him out of Boston, that's fine with us. Yeah, well, I, I, might, I assume that there's a way uh, to calculate how many wins that's worth to you as the you know if you're in the Yankees front office. I mean, do, do you think they perform that calculation? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most sophisticated teams at this time have in-house simulations, and so mm-hmm. what they would do, you know, Theoretically, uh, I'm almost certain the Yankees did this, is basically just put Todd Frazier and David Robertson and Tommy Conley on their team and not put Todd Frazier on the Red Sox and ran, you know, 10 million simulations and said, these are the expected records if we make this trade. And then let's not make this trade and let's put Todd Frazier on the Red Sox. And maybe we still get Robertson or Conley or something, but we, you know, we're not going to get Frazier anymore. And here's the expected outcomes if, if Todd Frazier goes to Boston. You know, it's not going to like change the numbers dramatically, but if it's, you know, a 5% swing in the playoff odds or, you know, gives you a slightly higher chance of winning the division and the cost isn't that high, and then I think it's, uh, you know, one of those things where you're like, this moves the needle a little bit and it basically costs us nothing. Uh, because if you look at like what they gave up, 
they they didn't give up very much for three players. Right. Uh, yeah, I think Blake Rutherford, who's a, a high school draftee a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, First draft pick, actually. So not just a high school draftee, but a fairly well-regarded one. Right, and I think that he, uh, what I think he has the his tools are well regarded, but maybe he has not necessarily converted that, translated that to on field excellence. Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, when I wrote about the White Sox farm system last week and kind of the style of players they traded for, I know White Sox fans didn't appreciate this perspective, but Blake Rutherford to this point is um, not a busted prospect, but he's on his way to it. Like, uh, it sounds early, it sounds premature. He's only twenty; he's got lots of time to develop. Like, there are major leaguers who have had Blake Rutherford's minor league track record to this point and then turned into really good players. I think, like, um, Robin Ventura, I think, famously didn't hit all that well in the minor leagues and then was, like, a really good player in the big leagues for a long time. Um, so it happens. But if you look at, kind of like, what Blake Rutherford's done, he was an older high school draftee. Uh, he, you know, went to rookie ball. So this is his first year in full season ball as a 20-year-old. So that's already, like, a knock against him. He's You can say, oh, yeah, he's a high school draftee, but he's older than most high school draftees. And uh, there's plenty of research out there that shows that the older draftees tend to perform worse. Um, and so you have a guy who's basically profiled as a as a bat-first player. He was drafted for his hitting ability. Uh, and he has two home runs. He's running a 100 ISO. And he's basically been a league average hitter in the, in the um, South Atlantic League. If you're a, if the bat is your carrying tool, you're older than most prospects, uh, given your development stage as a high school pick a couple of years ago, um, and you're not dominating low A ball, mm-hmm. it's, it's not good. It's like, this is, this is not a good profile. Like, Rutherford's a guy who's gonna be a corner outfielder defensively in the big leagues. You're gonna have to really hit your way to the big leagues. And I think what we've seen is that the value of even good hitting corner outfielders like J.D. Martinez has taken a nosedive. Uh, Tyler O'Neill, who's a better corner outfielder prospect than Blake Rutherford at this point, uh, at least in my opinion, who's 22 and hitting at least decently in AAA, has already mashed in AA, is a pretty good athlete. Uh, he was traded for Marco Gonzalez, right? Like the, this position, this skill set has been devalued around the league. So holding on to Blake Rutherford, hoping he turns into something, which he hasn't shown yet, uh, in a few years, so that he can have the trade value of Tyler O'Neill isn't all that special. Okay. Uh, now, uh, we, we've hit the 30-minute mark, so I, I don't want to keep you unduly. However, I do would, I would like to ask you about some of the um, – I think the Mariners have made at least two pitching acquisitions over the last – Yeah, they got David Phelps and Marco Gonzalez. Right, in separate trades. David yeah. Phelps from the Marlins and Marco Gonzalez, as noted from – that was from the uh, Cardinals, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I, I feel like – uh, well, the, the the Gonzalez trade, I guess, is curious anyway because Gonzalez hasn't uh, pitched much in the majors, um, if if at all this year. He made one start, went three innings, and got bombed. Okay, um, and uh, of course, David Phelps is of uh, modest help. Um, no, David Phelps is a good reliever. He had a breakout year last year, um, and I think uh, the interesting thing about David Phelps is. He could potentially be like this multi-inning guy, so he's actually started some. He threw a hundred and some odd innings last year between starting and relief work. Like if you're looking at kind of this new modern relief pitcher usage, mm-hmm. David Helps is one of those guys that could be like, I can bring that guy in the sixth inning and he can pitch me through the eighth. Okay, so what is uh, is it just is this just a need for pitching depth for a club that hasn't had much of it? Well, they started Giovanni Gallardo yesterday, so yeah. Okay, all right, all right. And uh, are they? Where are they in the standings right now? They're uh, around five hundred. They're in that American League blob of not very good teams fighting for a wild card spot. Um, but they're old. With Robinson Cano, uh, Nelson Cruz, and aging Felix Hernandez, um, they're in a position where they are 
incentivized to go for it. And so they're, even though they're not very good, or, you know, they're not terrible, but they're not great, uh, they're like, hey, you know, like, if we have to give up some 18-year-old, uh, you know, low-A prospect for modest bullpen help this year, that's fine. And I think what we've seen with Jerry DePoto is he's basically sold every upside lottery ticket in his farm system since he's got there for closer to the majors, lower ceiling, um, but, you know, proximity to help now because he's willing to trade long-term lottery tickets for marginal improvements. Okay, right. And, uh, yeah, I guess I suppose it, many of those American League teams are in an interesting place where if the cost isn't that great, uh, the benefit of adding at least a marginal upgrade uh, is worth it because someone has to win the wild card spots, even it, though it appears that no club uh, has much interest in doing so. Yeah, well, I think they're interested in that it's not able yeah, yes, the, that's right. The it spirit really is. is willing, but the body is weak. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real experiment in haves and haves nots. I mean, the Astros at this point, it's kind of the Astros and everyone else. Maybe the Astros, then Red Sox, and then everyone else. Yeah, and the Indians. I mean, our projections still think the Indians are <clears throat> the projections do. Indians, yeah, yeah. If you, uh, but the, the coin flip of the mind right. uh, does not uh, does not suggest that. Uh, finally, uh, before you go, Devers, Raphael Devers, whom I think. Uh, you were advocating for his promotion what, like two months ago. At this yeah, point. I, yeah, I wrote a piece calling for him to call him up. Yeah, I really like Raphael Devers. I mean, this is one of those guys who uh, has the skill set that I think translates best at the offensive level as a young hitter is power to all fields and contact skills. Like, he's not going to walk a ton, but he's not a totally a disciplined hack. This isn't like Jeff Brancourt or something. But I think when we've seen like successful young hitters come up you know, before they're 21, you kind of look at their track records of, like, the Miguel Cabrera's and the Carlos Correa's and the Giancarlo Stanton's. Like, they're guys who had fully developed power already. Not fully developed, but, like, already could hit the ball really far and didn't swing and miss too much. They weren't chasing pitches out of the zone. And this was, like, the, the Red Sox called up Juan Moncada last year and he looked terrible because he couldn't figure out what to swing at. And Byron Buxton, like, doesn't know whether to swing or not swing. And so these are the guys who tend to struggle a little bit more is the guys with contact problems, uh, who you can project their power long term, but it's not really there yet. Um, but I think Devers fits a little bit more into the uh, profile of a guy who can already crush a fastball. And if you, you know, like maybe the Cody Bellinger is another example of this. Like Bellinger strikes out a decent amount, but he has developed power. And so I don't think that the Red Sox should count on a Bellinger or a Stanton or a Cabrera type hitter. But there's at least enough of a track record to say just because he's 20 doesn't mean he's not going to be able to hit. Um, and when you're looking at, you know, Todd Frazier or Martin Prado or you know, Jervis Salarte as your trade options, I'm not sure Rafael Devers isn't at least as good as those guys and maybe better already. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the the, uh, the high contact sort as um, making that making that transition to the major as well. I believe some uh, some research by Chris Mitchell uh, supports that as well. That uh, you know, if you just take a, a player's kind of generic projection, um, and then you and then you, you know you divide the players in you know two groups essentially, low strikeout and high strikeout group. That low strikeout group is going to have a uh, a better transition to the majors than than the, the high strikeout group. Yeah, Endeavors isn't like a super high contact guy, but for his power, he's only struck out like 17, 18% of the time at every level in the minor leagues as a hitter who's significantly younger than most of his competition. And, you know, he's had like this monster power breakout over the last year plus, uh, where he ran like a, you know, 550 slugging percentage in AA and like 620 in AAA or something. Like, this is a guy who's driving the ball, uh, regularly with authority and not striking out too much. And I think that's the kind of skill set that the Red Sox potentially look at and be like, you know, um, this is like kind of what we're hoping from from Todd Frazier is like a 240 batting average and some power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, and actually the projections uh, 
are pretty friendly to him. I don't know, ninety, you know, a ninety-one WRC plus from both, uh, or from Steamer, I guess I'd say. Yeah. Which you know, for a twenty-year-old is pretty. For good. a twenty-year-old, that's pretty good. Right, and you you might not get a lot better from any of the players that you right. mentioned. Yeah. Already, and this one does not cost you anything except maybe. Time. Uh, uh, okay, uh, Dave Kim. I believe we've uh, I believe we've covered everything. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, we didn't talk as much about the fact that like this is probably our last podcast for a while. Yeah, hard to say. Uh, well, of course, uh, if we look at the data, uh, Dave Cameron, there's a possibility, uh, given that this is my, not only my wife's first pregnancy, but uh, that she is going to have a boy, that uh, that you know her her expected due date is actually probably a week later than than one might. But if we're realistic, so next Monday is the trade deadline. I don't think we'll be podcasting on trade deadline day because uh, stuff yeah. will be happening on trade deadline day, right, and so right, right, for right. us to talk about it while it's happening would be silly. Yeah. So then, like, the next possible recording date is probably next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, yeah. And I think at that point you might be like, screw this. I thought I was getting vacation time. Yeah, vacation time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they yeah. call it when you have a newborn, vacation time. <laughs> yeah, I'll be sleeping uh, two hours at a time. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Hey, well, thanks a lot, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right, that has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestule. This has been Fangraphs Audio.